Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. How do we make sense of reality and how does our brain process the world around us? The answer to these questions may not be as simple or straightforward as you think. In this episode's conversation, Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath will take us on a trip through the brain, shedding light on the power of stories to drive our perception and focus, and how we can change them in order to beneficially guide our own and others' focus. Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath is an expert in the field of educational neuroscience with a focus on human learning, memory, and attention. He has conducted research and lectured at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, the University of Melbourne, and over 100 schools internationally. Jared has published five books, over 30 research articles, and his work has been featured in numerous popular publications, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Wired, The Economist, and ABC's Catalyst. The Coder versus the Predictor, How the Brain Drives Focus, a Florence Guild conversation with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. Thank you, hooray. Thank you guys for hanging out with me tonight. Yeah, I'm, I hate hearing the bio stuff. I'm, I'm stupidly easy. I'm a teacher by trade, so this is what I love. Being in a small group, being able to chat. Interrupt, throw shit at me, yell at me, scream at me, anything you guys want. I've got places to go, but I'm happy to go where you guys want to. Cool? And the more you drink, the easier this becomes. So, here's what I want to do with you guys today. I want to take a dive into this sucker, this beautiful lady here, and see how she works. So, has anyone here, has anyone studied the brain before? Oh, okay. So let's just see where we're at. Looking at this thing here, what do, we, what do you know about it now? There's some basic things we can probably pick out. Like, you think brain, what kind of things do you know? Left and right. We've got a left hemisphere or right. We know the left side of our brain controls what side of our body? Right side. Right side controls. So everything crosses. Left eye goes to the right. Left ear goes to the... Everything crosses except for one sense. What's the only sense that doesn't cross? Mm. Smell. Smell is the only thing to go straight back. And, interestingly, tangent. Yeah, we're already on our first tangent. This is fantastic. Uh, this is what I do. Smell is also the only sense we have that doesn't transduce. So when you see something, you don't actually see the wavelengths of that thing. What you see are cells on the back of your eyes dying different colors. When you hear something, you don't hear the wavelengths. You hear cells wiggling. But when you smell something, literal molecules of that thing connect directly to your brain. And that is the signal. So when you smell a rose in that moment, that rose is a part of you. Don't go any further than Rose, because that gets real gross real fast. But this is the, the fact that the, that smell goes straight back and is our only direct connection to the world. What is smell heavily tied to? 
Like sometimes you smell something and what happens? Memory, deep memory. This is why we think smell is so attached to memory, that it is our only direct connection with the world. And whereas we used to say we're visual animals, now we say, no, we think we were originally smell animals and we just evolved everything else. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Well, I'm done, have a good night. <laughs> so we've got left side, right. Has anyone touched or dissected a brain? Or If you ever get to touch a brain, whew, what did you, what, was it in school or? Yeah, so when, you, when we get, was it in a cadaver? Yeah. Okay. When we get cool dissection brains, maybe we'll do it one night, we'll just get lamb brains and dissect them. It's fun as hell. They're kind of spongy, but if you ever get to touch a live brain, so I work at the, at the epilepsy clinic at St. Vincent's, and sometimes what we'll have to do is we'll have to take a skull off and probe a brain while the person is awake so we can figure out where we need to map so we don't cut out the wrong parts of the brain when we do surgery. If you ever get to touch a living brain, it feels like tapioca pudding. That's how absolutely soft it is. You can take your finger and just go all the way through it if you wanted to. Which is why, what do we got to protect it? That's why all this crap happened, because it is the most fragile thing. But now you can see also why head injuries are so important, because it is so easy to bust this thing. It is so dainty and fragile. Hopefully you'll never see a brain unless, I don't know, one of your kids falls off a swing set, which is not good. But hopefully you'll never have to see it. But if you do, now you know. Cool. It's really, really, it's almost liquidy soft. So what I want to do with you guys today is I want to figure out what the operating system of this thing is. Forget all the nuts and bolts. How does this thing work? What's its basic principles? And to understand how it works, the easiest way to do it is to kind of walk through history, how we've thought about it from beginning until now. Because once you know where we started, then now makes a whole lot more sense. So when we began, we used to think the brain was just kind of an all-purpose meat computer. So the world kind of comes in through your senses, and the brain just thinks. Stomach digests, lungs breathe, brain thinks. That's all it does. And then this guy came along, Phineas Gage. Has anyone uh, met Phineas? We know Phineas. Yeah. If you're dis so Phineas is awesome. So what happened to this guy? He used to work on the railroad, and he had the unfortunately named job of a blower. So bear with me. I know, it's <laughs> probably didn't mean the same thing back then. But when you're laying down railroad tracks and you get to a hill, you got three choices. You go around the hill, you tunnel through the hill, or you blow the hill up. Guess what he did? He's a blower. He blows things up. So he goes up there, digs his hole, fills it with black powder. Now, black powder loose isn't actually explosive. If you, have you guys ever played with a sparkler before? So that's black powder loose. It just kind of fizzes. What do you have to do to black powder to make it explosive? Compress it. You have to compress it. You have to get it tight. You have to get it into a little bowl. So he goes up there, digs his hole, fills it with black powder, and he's like, damn, I got to somehow compact this. Hey, engineers, do you guys have a tool I can use? They said, we sure do. We got this giant metal rod with a pointed end. So he puts it in there. He starts hitting this metal rod with his hammer. Now, what do you think might happen? when you hit a metal rod with a metal hammer around explosives. So he comes down, kicks off a spark, the spark catches the black powder, ignites it, shoots this pull up. The pull caught him right above, if you ever want to see his skull, it's still in Boston, caught him right above the left jaw, took his eye out from the inside, so it caught the optic nerve, ripped it in, took the entire front part of his brain out, shot out of the top of his head. This thing landed 30 meters behind him. That's how much force this came up with. And what do you think happened to Mr. Gage? 
Not only did he survive, he picked up his hammer and went right back to work. He didn't even lose consciousness. Now, in hindsight, he almost certainly was suffering shock, but here we go. We've just got a dude who just lost half of his brain, and he goes right back to work. We were right. The brain's just an all-purpose meat machine. You can take it out, rip it out, move it. It doesn't really matter. But then weird things started happening. So before this accident, Phineas Gage was just a nice dude. He had a wife, kids, he worked. He was just a cool guy. Afterwards, stuff started to change. So real quickly, Phineas decided he didn't want to go to work anymore. Fair enough, I wouldn't either. So he kind of quit working. Then he didn't want to take care of his wife and kids anymore. So he kicked them out. Then he didn't want to be around people anymore. So he kind of moved out of town. And he just spent the rest of his life living in just kind of a shack and just this blah of a human being. Didn't want to do anything, didn't care anymore. And the people who knew him said the Phineas Gage before the accident, totally different than the Phineas Gage after. Something changed. So from him, we learned that you don't have a brain. You have dozens and dozens and dozens of mini-brains, all scattered throughout up here. And each of these mini-brains has its own job. So in his case, he rips out all these ones in the front, brains that give him uh, uh, passion, drive, set goals, motivation, relationships, lose it, keeps all the brains that let him hold a hammer, breathe, walk, and talk. Just these ones up front he loses. So cool, we don't have a brain, we have a bunch of mini brains. Which leads to the next question. If this is many things, how does all of this become one consciousness? How do we reconcile dozens of things into one experience? And our first theory was here. I'm going to play you a video, but I've taken the picture out. All you have to do is listen to the video and see if you can hear what this woman is saying. So what's she saying? Baba. Baba. Cool. So we've got a woman saying Baba. I'm going to show you the same video, except this time I'm going to show you her face. See what she's saying this time. What is it? Father? Dada? Close your eyes. What's she saying? <laughs> With your eyes closed, what's coming into your ears? Baba. With your eyes open, it becomes... The Faja? Why? What is... What's, what the hell's going on? Why when we watch... Shut up, she'll do this all day. <laughs> it's like a 10-hour loop. Why do we all of a sudden hear something else when we see her? What was it about her face that makes us think okay, that this can't be Baba? Baba. Well, we it's her Baba. lips. Yeah. Bingo, what's her lips saying? So take your ears out of the equation. Baba. And what do we see? Oh, that's a real hard thing to do, sorry. Baba. If you could shut that off, which I can't do, you'll see her mouth is saying Gaga. So here we go. Our theory was this. <laughs> Her mouth is saying gaga. We know the sound coming in is baba, and we all get fava? The hell? So our theory was this. Okay, the world comes in through your senses, triggers off all these programs, and we get just some global average. Just all of it just kind of smushes together, and whatever's right in the middle, that's what we get. Baba here, gaga here, middle is da da. Cool. 
It took about five years, and this was literally a theory we worked with, until somebody said, wait, that doesn't make any sense, because what about this? Now, you know anytime someone talks about the brain, you're going to have to play this game, so bear with me. <laughs> All right, I'm going to pop a color up in this box. All you have to do out loud as quickly as you can, tell me what the color is. Here we go. Oh, you orange-red-ites. All right, fair enough. We're good. <laughs> Barring that one. I guess that does kind of look orangey, doesn't it? <laughs> Meant to be red. My bad. Sweet. So we know our colors. Woohoo! Round two. I'm going to pop a word in this box. All you have to do is read the word as quickly as you can. Here we go. Sweet! All right, so we know our colors, we know our words. Rock and roll. All right, here we go. Round three. This time I'm going to pop a word in this box, but each word is going to be written in a different colored font. Your job, out loud as quickly as you can, tell me what color that word is written in. So I don't care about the word, I don't want to hear the word, I want to know what color the letters of that word are. Cool? So out loud so everyone can hear you, as quickly as you can. Here we go. Oh, wait, wait, you are actually doing damn good. You are nailing it. The rest of you, embarrassing, embarrassing. So wait, what the hell just happened? So what was this going on here? So go back to our idea. We've got multiple brains, right? We see something like this. You've got one bit of your brain that likes what? You see this, one bit of your brain is doing colors, loves colors. Does it care what else is going on in the world? I've got one job, color, I'm doing it. You've got another bit of your brain that likes what? Words. Does it care what else is going on? I've got one job, reading. Here's a word, I'm doing it. You can feel that. Did you feel that tension, that push-pull between color bit, word bit? Now, according to our last theory, if all we did was live in an average, those two bits should have come together and we all should have just said, Brown, brown, sweet, whatever's between purple and red, brown, works for me. We should have just said the average, but we didn't. We feel this push-pull, and in the end, you are able to select one out. Takes a second, but you can go purple, red, so you can select something. So this means we don't just live in an average, we must have a controller. Somewhere in our brain must be a module, a node, that can somehow organize and coordinate all these other ones. Now, if you had to pick a spot in your head where you think your controller lives, where do you think this guy sits? Middle. middle would make the most sense, but it turns out the middle is the oldest part of the brain, and this guy is oddly new. So it's not in the middle, it's in the front. What's that bit of the brain that's, that's the human part that only we have? Prefrontal cortex. Guess where your controller sits? Dun, 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 dun. So here we go. You got color bit, you got word bit going off, and in the front you've got this controller that can organize all the rest of your brain by sending out a single signal. The controller, the frontal lobe, never turns anything on. The only thing it does is turn stuff off. And this is how the brain works. The world comes in through your senses, triggers off all these mini brains, and the controller can say, nope, 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 nope. And whatever's left, congratulations, that's your experience. For 60 years, this is how we spoke. For 60 years, we thought, we're done, put away your lab coats, we got this thing sorted, the rest is just details. And then this happened. 
12 black lines and one green square changed everything we thought we knew about the brain and how it works. And some of you are already doing it. But for those who aren't, I want you to imagine that the green face, imagine it's like a piece of glass so we can see through it. And imagine that this is the front of the cube. So the cube starts here, goes backwards down into the left. You look confused, uncertain. <laughs> the hell is he talking about? And if you got in the front, I want you to push it to the back now. Make the green the back of the cube. So the cube actually starts here on this face, goes backwards up and to the right. Huh. And if you got it in the back, bring it to the front. And if you got it in the front, push it to the back. There it is. There it is. Who still can't do it? Anyone? Just going, what the fuck are they talking about? It's just a cube. If you can't, if you can't do it, look away real fast and come back. It might start doing it on its own. But for the rest of us, with active brains, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just being an asshole. Sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. For every, the important thing to ask is, am I changing this picture right now? Like, am I zipping between two different cubes? There it is, yes! <laughs> Winner. If you can't do it still, there's more to come, so don't worry about it. There's, but if, am I changing this image right now? So the world is exactly the same. The world hasn't changed. The wavelengths coming off of here, hitting your eye, triggering programs, is exactly the same right now as it was 10 seconds ago. Yet you can see two different things. Who's doing that? Huh. According to our theory, if all we have is a controller that can shut programs down, here this should come in, activate programs, and the best we could do is either see it or not see it. But not only can we see it, we can change it, we can manipulate it, we can move it. Who's doing that? You're doing it. I'm. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Huh? Is it a social module where you attune to other people? No. Because you can go home and do this yourself. This was just the one that broke us into. But you'll see, social does come into play with it. That's a really good question. So I am guiding you. But in this instance, that's not necessarily, we'll see in the next one. Just because this is so important, let's do another one. So for this next picture, I want you to imagine that we're going to New Orleans. It's Mardi Gras. We're going to go to a masquerade ball. You guys want to go to a ball with me? Yeah. Sweet. Here is the mask I have purchased for our ball. Do you see my mask? And I'll bet some people over here don't, oddly enough. You're in the right angle. So if you see my mask, cool. Now what I want you to imagine is that while I'm at this party, I meet a lovely young lady. Sparks fly. The night ends in magic. Now thinking of me and this lady, I want you to focus just on the black and white bit in the middle and see if anything else pops out at you. Well, there's a face. From your angle, all you guys will see is the other thing. So we see a mask. What else? Two people kissing? What? What? Shit. Oh. Who still has no clue what we're talking about? Oh! <laughs> oh my God. 
So if you can't see it, it's two people in profile coming in for a kiss. So like, here's the dude, here's his nose and his mouth. And then behind him is the woman coming in for the smooch. So if you see the kissers, go back and see the mask. And if you see the mask, go back and see the kissers. Am I changing this picture at all? Is the world shifting in any way, shape, or form? Yet you can see two different things. Who's doing this? Last one, just because I love these. You all know intellectually that this square is exactly the same color as that square. You all know it, but I guarantee you none of you see that. What color does this one look like? Orange, cool. All I'm going to do is fade out the picture. I promise you I have not doctored this. You can put it through Photoshop, do the click tool, whatever you got to do. Dude, I've been working with a dude at uni for four years now. And a couple weeks ago, he's like, can you send me that fake slide you use with the picture? I'm like, god damn it, dude, it's real. Four years he thought I docked it. I promise you I haven't. All I'm going to do is fade it out except for those two squares. See if you can feel the exact moment when you decide, no, nah, that's not orange, that's brown. No. All I'm going to do is bring it back in. You can use any scientific tool you want to measure the wavelengths, to do whatever you got to do. This part of the world is not going to change in any way, shape, or form. But see if you can feel the moment when you decide, no, nah, it can't be brown, it must be orange. Okay. Bingo. So what is it about this that makes us think it's orange? What context specifically? Perfect. So we've got light, we've got shade. We've got light and dark. Now you all know we have a lot of experience with light and shadow, yeah? We know that when something moves from light into shadow, the tones, the colors change, but the thing stays the same. And here everything is doing exactly what it should. The green is shifting. The red is shifting, the white is shifting, the yellow is shifting. Everything is shifting except for this. We know what it should be doing. It's not doing it. So guess who shifts the color for it? Welcome to the New World Order. You don't have a controller in the front of your brain. You have a coder. Sitting in your prefrontal cortex is a module that can send signals back to every other cell within your brain. So not just the programs, the cells that make up the programs. Tweak how they function at the molecular level so that you experience the world in the way you think it should be, not in the way it actually is. And if that didn't make you feel uncomfortable, then you didn't hear what I just said. Let's do it again. Sitting in the front of your brain is a module that can send signals to every other cell in your brain and we now know outside of your brain. Tweak how it functions at the most basic level so that you literally see, hear, smell, feel, taste the world you think should exist, not the world that actually does exist. Easiest way to understand this. Oh, I forgot. Go back to her. I forgot I wanted to come back to this woman. When we have Baba coming in here and we have Gaga coming in here, we always just assumed that everything came in clean and then somewhere down the track you just decided to morph it and, and 
hear something else. So everything got in fine, just later you decided to change it. We now know that's not true. When your eyes are closed and you hear baba, the very first cells in your ear start wiggling to give you baba. As soon as you see her voice and hear da da or faja, the very first cells in your ear shift and act differently. Baba never gets in. Gaga never gets in. The very first cells to move change so that you get what you think it should be, not what it actually is. Easiest way to understand this. We always said that the world was out there sending signals in, triggering the brain, and that's how this works. We now know that's not true. There's something out there. There's a world, sure. But at any one time, we are pushing back. And it is this we got to deal with now. And I know this sounds new agey. I know this sounds cute and fluffy. I'm not kidding you. We got to deal with this in a lab 24 hours, seven days a week now. This is the game we live in. Now this leads to an important question. What codes the coder? If this thing is sending signals back, changing all of this to dictate what we experience, what's guiding this? And you already nailed it with the, with the picture before. It's essentially context. In neuro, we say your schema is guiding your coder. In psych, we say it's your concepts, and this is the word I'll use a lot. Easiest way to understand it is this, your stories. The stories you use to make sense of the world, how it works, how it functions, how the pieces fit together, who I am, how I fit with those pieces, those stories drive your coder. Your coder then changes things, so that's what you get. In a very real sense, your stories drive your perception, not the other way around. And now you start to see why this relates to focus. Oh, Maya's is like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Welcome to focus. Your stories drive your coder, your coder drives your perception. Now, I, can I tell you guys a quick story? Yes. There's, there's, there's more to come after this, because this is just the coder. We have to go into the predictor, but I want, can I show you how deep this gets? Just give me five, trust me, it's worth it. To show you how deep this, because I mean, this is all really cute when we're playing like fun games, oh, colored squares, ah, sweet. But how deep does this get? Like how real is this concept? To understand, I want to tell you the story. My story starts with this dude, William Gladstone. Does anyone know why he's famous? Poor Gladstone. So he was British prime minister um, four times in the late 1800s, so a, a politician. But his true passion was Homer, the Odyssey and the Iliad. He loved these books. He thought that the answers to life were somehow hidden there. All we had to do was find it. So he treated them like the Bible. He just spent his whole life deconstructing these books, pulling out messages. This story takes place about midlife, so he's in his mid-30s when this happens, and he's reading through the Iliad, and he comes across a passage. So it's during the Trojan War, and Homer's writing about Achilles. Achilles is going to quit. He's going to go home. He's had enough. And Homer writes he was going to hop in his boat, and Achilles was going to sail back home across the wine-dark sea. Four words. This whole story starts with four words. The wine-dark sea. Gladstone reads this, and he thinks to himself, Man, that's a weird choice. Like, I've grown up next to the ocean my whole life, and I've seen it dark, I've seen it black, I've seen it gray. I've never seen it the same color I describe a glass of wine. That's just odd. So he starts digging through, and he notices Homer uses colors in a very weird way. So, for instance, any time Homer's talking about iron, iron is always purple to Homer. Whenever he talks about honey, it's green. 
Whenever he talks about uh, sheep, they're always violet. So in Homer's world, sheep are violet. He's like, man, what is going on? This is weird. So the next thing he does is he just goes through the Odyssey and the Iliad, and he just counts up how many times Homer uses color words. Just counts them. And he finds the most used color, hands down, was black. That was used 170 times. Then white was used 100. Next most used color, way down here, is red at 13. Green and yellow were each used less than 10 times. And one major color doesn't appear anywhere in either the Odyssey or the Iliad. What is it? Yellow was in it. It was blue. Blue just wasn't there. He goes, man, this is weird. So the next thing he does, he goes through all of Homer's contemporaries. Every ancient Greek author he can find, he just goes through, counts up color words, and he finds the exact same pattern. Whole lot of black, whole lot of white, a little bit of red, some green, some yellow, and one color doesn't appear in any piece of ancient Greek writing. What is it? Blue. Just wasn't there. So Gladstone says, I think I figured it out. Homer must have been colorblind. And by extension, every single ancient Greek author was also colorblind. That was, that was the theory he put forward. He said, if you wanted to be a writer, you, prerequisite, you had to be colorblind. So how do you think that theory went over? Everyone's like, all right, get back to politics. Sorry, guys. So he never talked about it again. Everyone just kind of giggles and he, just, he leaves it go. Just lets, lets it go. 20 years later, this guy comes along, Lazarus Geiger. He hears about this and he goes, I think there's something there. I want to keep digging. So what Geiger does is he goes through every major civilization he can around the world. So Iceland, uh, Japan, China, Egypt, the Vedic hymns, Hebrew, you name it. Pick a culture. He goes as far back as he can in their literature and all he does is count up color words. And he finds the exact same pattern in every civilization around the world. The first color to appear in every culture's writing is always black and white. The first real color to appear in every culture's writing is always red. Green and yellow alternate. And the last color to appear in every civilization's writing, except for one, is what? Blue. It didn't exist anywhere in the ancient world. Now, one culture did have it first. They, they, they had it earlier than the rest. They went blue, I'm sorry, they went black, white, red, green, blue, yellow. So they had blue before anyone else. Does anyone want to guess which culture may have had blue first? Throw out a kill, come on. It wasn't the Greeks. I, I wish it was the Italians. It wasn't the Italians. It was not the Arabs. They came in real close, though. You are spot on. So keep. Well, wait. So who was the only? It was the Egyptians. Because what did the Egyptians have that no other culture had at the time? Lapis lazuli. If you think about it, blue is incredibly rare in nature. Like, there's not a lot of blue buffaloes roaming the plains. There's not a lot of blue flowers. Yeah? Wait for it. Wait. You guys are jumping ahead of my story. How dare you? So hold on to the sky. Hold on to it. I promise you we will come back to this. What about the ocean? Oh, God, God damn it. You're ruining everything. <laughs> hold, on to the, hold on to the sky and the ocean because you guys are spot on. 
But for now, let's just accept that sky and ocean aside, blue is incredibly rare. Just wait for it. It gets good. It gets real good real fast. In fact, to this day, the only natural source of aquamarine blue pigment we have is guess what? This is it. This is mined in Afghanistan. The Egyptians could bring it down. They could crumble it into a paste, make eyeshadow, make paint. Cool. They then started trading that out. Everyone got it. Geiger says, I figured it out. Once you can produce a color, then you start writing about it. Until you can make it, you just, it just doesn't matter, so you don't talk about it. Egyptians could make it, they had it, boom. Everyone's like, that's a great theory. And Geiger's like, thank you, that is a great theory, that is awesome. Too bad I don't believe it. He said, I think it's the other way around. What if, instead of until I can produce a color, I just don't talk about it, it's until I know a color should exist, it doesn't. So instead of until I can make a pigment, meh, it's until I have the concept for that pigment, there is no pigment. Now, how do you think that theory went over? He said this, he ended up getting kicked out of the scientific academy almost immediately. Whatever that means, you can't do science anymore. Oh, shit. But that was how, <laughs> that was how angry people are. They said, you can't say things like that. That's not scientific. You, you, how would you ever prove that? That's stupid. And the biggest argument against him was, how could you prove that? And that's a great point. We can't go back in the past. How could you ever prove something like that? That's stupid. Well, cut to today. There is a tribe in Namibia called the Himba. We know their language. Guess what they don't have a word for? Blue. Now we can test this. Green is their color. It means everything from food to trail to, to water. It's their thing. We have about 17 that we use. Our concepts drive our coder. Our coder changes ourselves, so that is exactly what we experience. Now, the German research, that white dude in that video, was coming out with this evidence about 10 years ago. And everyone's like, wow, holy shit, Geiger was right. But wait, there's one big issue. And what was the big issue that everyone's been saying the whole time? The sky and the sea. You don't need a blue buffalo roaming the plain. You don't need a blue flower. We're all under the bluest thing all day, every day. If, what about the sky? Well, I got some bad news for you. If this theory is correct, then guess what? Sky ain't blue. The sky is only blue because we are making it blue. We have the concept that allows it to be blue. Doesn't matter. Scientifically, I can tell you exactly what wavelengths are coming off of here, but I guarantee you none of you see it. So it doesn't really even matter. The point I'm making is that the concept you have drives your experience of the world around you. You don't want there to be color there? There won't be color there. So wait a second. If the sky ain't blue, how the hell would you ever prove that? Well, luckily, that German researcher in the video was about to have a kid, and like any good researcher does, when you have a kid, what do you do? You run an experiment. So he has a <laughs> he's, an, he's an asshole. So, so you have a ba he had a baby girl, and he decided, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach her her colors. She will know colors. She'll be able to point to um, 
this and say that's blue. I'm looking for something blue. She'll be able to point to that circle and say blue. She'll know that color. She just won't ever hear that the sky should be blue. Like she'll, she'll know the color. She just won't know. Oh, shit. Thank you. She just won't know that blue is what should be up there. So when she grew up, they had to control every book that, that was in the house. If it had a blue sky, it wasn't allowed. Every TV show she watched, everyone she spoke to, she just never came across the concept that the sky should be blue. Cool. So he says, if you ever get to hear him talk about this, it's fascinating. So he says she's about two and a half years old. They're in the park. It's a perfectly blue sky day. Time to spring my trap. Here we go. So he starts playing the color game with her. He's like, what color is that? Green. Yay. What color is that? Brown. Yay. So then I did it. And I said, what color is that? Point it up. He said this bubbly, effusive, laughing girl just shut up. And he said, come on, baby. What, what color is that? He said, she looked at me scared, like I was pointing at nothing. So he said, all right, don't worry about it. Let it go. It's all good. <laughs> Forget it. For the next six months, any time it was a blue sky day, he'd take her outside, play the color game, and he'd say, what color is that? Six months, she didn't say a word. Finally, she's a little older than three. They're outside. They do it. And he says, what color is that? And she finally said her first word. What color do you think she said? wasn't black. It was white. She said, the sky is white. If you ask Homer and every other ancient Greek author, guess what color the sky is? It's white. If you ask the Himba, if you ask the Himba, guess what color the sky is? White. Oh, I wish it was green. That'd be too freaking cool. <laughs> no, it's white. They just don't have any concept. The Himba are cool because we can talk to them. They have no concept for color being in the sky. So for them, the sky is either white, gray, or black. It's white during the day, black at night, gray during sunrise or sunset. They never see color in the sky. They see color. They just don't see it in the sky. It's not there for them. So we can test babies on whether or not they can discern colors. Himba babies, until about the age of two, can easily discern blue. It's once they start learning the language that they lose that concept. So the concept is in there. It's just they weed it out of them through their words. That's the concept that's driving the story that's driving the coder. Absolutely. At some point, there has to be a give and take. Language drives so much. But then who drove language? And apparently, I, I, I did not know this at the time, they can't sep well, their language anyway, they couldn't separate colors from objects. So you and I say this is a a red bottle. And we could take away red, and we could take away bottle, and they could both stand on their own. To them, it's red bottle. Take away bottle, red goes with it. And there is no standalone adjective. It is red bottle or nothing. So when you say, what color is that? They go, mm-hmm. Well, what is it? It's red chair. They have to have everything combined. And it was the hardest thing to teach them, just because our concepts were so very different. And we used to think we were all talking about the same exact world, and we now know, no, we're all talking about very different worlds. When I say I don't see something, I don't, it's not there. It's not cute. There's nothing there for me. Huh. Hmm. I want you to hold this concept of the coder. Because <laughs> I, I, I kid you not, that con this, if this doesn't get you trip, tomorrow, hopefully it's a perfect day. When you go outside and look up at the sky, you ask yourself, who's doing that? And then you start to get real questions about, you start to recognize things like, 
company identity, things like collaboration, why all these things start to become really important. If the stories are driving our perceptions, what is our story? What's our concept? We now go back to that question of how do I know that the red I see is the same red you see? And the only answer we can conceivably come up with at this point is it's not. It's totally not. We just see very different things, but we've decided the same word, describe the same thing, but I don't have your experience. So at this point, you have to say, okay, wait, there's an issue here. Right now, your brain already uses 20 to 25% of all your energy. It just, this thing is an energy sap. We estimate if the coder was always on changing, tweaking things, always rebuilding programs, you'd only be awake maybe three and a half to four hours a day. That's how much extra energy this sucker needs. And to be fair, when I'm pointing here, I'm being very flippant. It's a network. It's a full network thing is where the coder, we just live here is where we put them. So this means your coder can't be active 24-7. It can't always be changing, retweaking, rebuilding. And in fact, it's not. The vast majority of the time your coder isn't coding, it's doing this. It's predicting. You, right now, none of you are actually listening to me. That hurts my feelings, but <laughs> you are all one to two seconds in front of me predicting the words that are gonna come out of my mouth. And so long as those words are even remotely close to what you think they should be, you experience the prediction and not the reality. We call this concept bottom-up versus top-down processing. And this is where, so bottom-up means the world comes in and you have an automatic prediction. You go, wait a second, I've seen this stuff before. I know how this stuff works. Just roll the prediction. I don't even need to connect with it. I know this is dangerous. I know this is fun. I know how this works. Top-down is when your coder actively kicks in and says, wait, we don't have a prediction for this. We've got to build something. We've got to change something. So the example I always use is if I sat you down and I popped this in front of you, whoop, do you all know how to play this? Knots and cross. Do you have to think deeply about this? Or could you do this while talking on the phone? So this comes in, triggers off programs. Is this predictor or coder? Do you have a prediction or do you have to actively engage with it? This is prediction. Comes in, you go, oh, I've seen this before. Don't worry about it. You can just run a simple prediction. But imagine I sat you down and I popped this in front of you. Twilight struggle. Anyone, anywhere my Twilight struggle fans at? Oh, I, I Google image search uh, world's weirdest board game, and this was the first one to come up, Twilight Struggle. So here you go. So none of us have any clue what this is. So what would you have to do? If I said sit down and play this, what would you have to do? Read the instructions. Take a look at the cards. What are the pieces? Develop a strategy. In which case, if you don't have a prediction, what mode do you have to be in? coder now we're top down now we're saying wait a second something's coming in the world doesn't make sense in this moment i gotta rewrite something i gotta rebuild something maybe i gotta tweak something now imagine you played this five hours a day seven days a week for the next month what does this start to look like boom doesn't matter how complex something is you can build once you build a program you can then start to live in prediction you can build a sense of how the world should be and then that's what you start to get so you start to see where it becomes survival-based, where it's like, cool, I get that that's always bad, just build a prediction, see it, run away. And it doesn't matter, P.S., it doesn't matter how complex stuff gets. So remember when you learned to drive? Who here drives? Is that the most miserable? Remember when you first learned how miserable that was? Like everything 
was scary and it was important. Did any of you guys do the, I used to do the thing where if I looked over my shoulder to change lanes, my hands would go with me. And I, oh, sorry. How many of you drove today? And you look a little bit more like this. It doesn't matter how complex something is. So long as you understand it, you can build a program and then live in your predictor. The vast majority of the time, human beings simply live in a prediction. Now at this point, people go, well, wait. So, so we want to be in coder all the time. We want to trick people into their coder. No, no, no. Bottom-up prediction is how we survive. Outside of energy, what predictions allow us to do is build up into bigger, bolder, more different, bigger, crazier things. Once you lock something down, then you can move forward. So the example I always use is this. I'm going to pop a sentence up here. What I want you to do is I want you to count the number of letter Fs. So F is in Frank. How many Fs are in this sentence? All right. Now, raise your hand if you got, we'll start at two. How many people got at least two? We'll start with two. Cool. Three, four, five, six. There are six letter Fs in that sentence. If you missed them, count again. Which ones are you missing? Why, even when I told you, why do we still miss the ofs? Imagine I had like a little girl and I'm just teaching her letters for the first time and I say, how many Fs? Guess what she'd say? Six. Six. But once you can turn letters into words, guess what you start predicting? Letters. You, know, you don't have to pay attention to them. You can just predict of, ov, don't worry about it. You don't even see them anymore. You simply predict what they should be. Once you can turn words into sentences, guess what you stop paying attention to? And that's why most people miss the second the in that sentence. We know what the sentence should read, and that's exactly what we get. The brain sees a second the, just erases it and goes about it. Once you know how to turn sentences into paragraphs, you stop reading sentences. Go home tonight, pick up any book, newspaper, read a paragraph, and when you're done, try and verbatim write out any sentence you just read. There's nothing there. You are simply predicting the sentences to move on to the higher cognitive value. Once you can turn paragraphs into chapters, you stop reading paragraphs. Chapters into genres, you stop reading books. This is why Grapes of Wrath is exactly the same story as Finding Nemo, is exactly the same story as Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, is exactly the same story as Walking Dead Season 1. They know that once they start the ball rolling, you can live in your prediction and go, I know how this plays out. Cool, it's a zombie, it's a turtle, but it doesn't really matter. I'm good to go. <laughs> and this is how we survive. Predictions allow us to build and move forward. Which, P.S., if you were ever curious, this is why Game of Thrones was so popular. How many people have watched it? I don't want to give anything away. If you watch it, you know what I'm talking about. They start the show, and it's a perfect prediction. There's a knight, there's a, a horse, there's a king. Oh, yeah, I've seen this a million times. Have a good one. Season 1, Episode 9, they do something that you've never seen before. And all of a sudden in that moment, your prediction dies and your coder kicks in and you go, what? And you have to pay attention because you don't get it anymore. Your prediction has failed and you don't know what's going on. If you haven't watched Game of Thrones, go back and watch it and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about because when it happens, that was a 
called a prediction break and it destroyed your predictor. All of a sudden you had to access your coder and that's why people have to keep watching it. They need to build a new prediction. So bottom-up predictions aren't the enemy. They are what allow us to keep breathing, living, moving forward. Now, luckily our body, our brain has built in a system to let us know when we're accessing our coder. The vast majority of time we're just in predictor mode, but we can feel it when our coder kicks in. And I want you to feel it right now. I want you to feel when the, your body says, uh-oh, this didn't work, and your coder says, let's start rewriting. So I'm going to play you a sound. All you have to do is tell me, what is this sound? Or I'm not going to play it. Hold on. Oh, wh what is it? Doorbell. Cow. Cow. OK, so we're in prediction mode. We're having a good time. What is this? Ooh, R2-D2? Hmm. Let's listen again. Oh, shit, I forgot. We got R2-D2, anyone with a bird? Wiping glass, maybe? Take a moment. What are you feeling right now? Something is coming into your body, and you don't have a prediction for it. What do you feel? Frustrated, on edge. Absolutely. Does anyone, does anyone feel like confused, tense? I get, it, I get a feeling here. I get a real sensation like, <laughs> Congratulations. This is the first time you've been here all night. Welcome to the room. <laughs> that is the feeling of your prediction shutting down and your coder kicking in, saying, uh-oh, something doesn't make sense. I need to be here right now and make sense of it. So this comes in. We all get it. P.S. Does it feel good? Do you start to see why a lot of people, students, I work with education, mostly students. Do you see why they avoid this feeling? The coder doesn't feel great, but learn to love that feeling because that's the feeling of learning and growth. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.